one of our greatest tools is still architecture, making something that says something to other people. That capacity of making a form that represents something, that's an extremely powerful tool. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Michael Maltzen, an architect whose practice focuses on housing, infrastructure, and the public realm. Michael joins us today to discuss his work in addressing chronic homelessness in Los Angeles. Michael, welcome. Glad to be here. I know most recently you and your practice have been engaged among many other projects uh, with the 6th Street Viaduct. Hmm. Tell us about that. The viaduct is a, uh, it's a new bridge replacing the old 6th Street Viaduct, which had a major presence in the city. It's uh, one of a series of bridges that were built in really the turn of the 20th century, um, from the early teens to the uh, just post or pre-war period. Merrill Butler was the city engineer and believed in the city beautiful movement, which existed throughout the U.S. around that time. He had a real goal of using infrastructure, the engineering projects in the city, to help establish a higher level of physical context of the aesthetics in in the city. And the bridges over the L.A. River and its, its floodway were an important part of not only that project, they were extremely important moments in the city connecting two sides of the city that had often been seen as as uh, being separated uh, physically to a large extent, uh, culturally as well, socially. The Sixth Street Bridge is the longest of all of the bridges, the viaducts. It, it spans from what is known as the Arts District to Boyle Heights, which has over the years become really the center of uh, Latino culture and um, political power. Uh, the bridge crosses, because it's so long, not only the river, uh, but number of uh, important infrastructural rail lines, uh, high power lines. It crosses a couple of highways. So it's almost a cross-section of many of the physical and social structures that make Los Angeles or have defined Los Angeles. So in, in addition to its length, is it fair to characterize the Sixth Street Bridge as among the more iconic of these bridges? It's certainly the original bridge was. And if you've watched either TV commercials or apocalyptic films, it shows up in... If you've much. watched almost anything. It, it shows up constantly. And that was one of the parts of the brief in the competition, which was a limited competition, eventually down to a few teams. The brief talked about creating a replacing and creating a new icon in the city. And that as a programmatic idea, uh, I think is was probably the most terrifying part of, of the project because uh, approaching the project, because how do you start to try to make something that's going to be an icon, especially one that's not classically tall or, or figurative. So, Michael, why would you as an architect and your practice, Michael Maltzen Architecture, with the international reputation that you and your work have generated over the past decades, 
why would you engage in some, such a fraught uh, commission? Like, what's appealing about right. working in the public realm with such an iconic uh, project? For me, there was a larger um, architectural question than there was a personal side of it. And the personal side of it was just merely that it was going to be an important project in Los Angeles that related to its history and and certainly would have something significant to say about its future. And I work here. I care about this city. I've thought a lot over the years about it. That made it important personally. But at a larger level, a kind of um, architectural level, these structures, infrastructure in particular, in many cities, they play an extremely important role in defining the city. They are structures that connect to uh, the way people transit the city, the way that they make memories, uh, and they're certainly a big part of the scene and economy of, of the city. The Sixth Street Bridge, I thought, though, could say something about new responsibilities for infrastructure. Too often, infrastructure, certainly coming out of the middle of the 20th century and the post-war period, infrastructure tended to be a singular thing. I've I've described it in the past as, as a kind of monoculture. Uh, it was only responsible for doing one thing. Generally, in a city like Los Angeles, getting cars from one side of the city to the other it was about ease of mobility. Uh, but these are enormous structures. They have uh, huge impacts on any city where they're built. They take enormous resources. They're very expensive. And I think it's important to try to challenge that infrastructure to do more than one thing, to be a kind of multiculture of purpose, um, a multiculture of, of responsibilities and engagements. And that, for me, was very much on my mind with the with the Sixth Street Viaduct. Could we start to suggest beyond pure fundamentals of the program other ways that infrastructure could could work, could challenge your expectations about what role they play in a city. I mean, you reference this period in the 1920s, and I think of the Sixth Street Viaduct as a product of what Christopher Hawthorne, the, the now chief design officer for the city of Los Angeles and Mayor Garcetti, formerly architecture critic at the LA Times, is referred to as the first era of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. sort of before the, before the post-war kind of engineering monocultures. Mm-hmm. To what extent is your work on the bridge going to refer to that history? Or how do you deal with the iconography of that kind of deco period and what it meant in the public realm? Well, the original Sixth Street Bridge, the image that most people have of it are, were these two arches, pair of arches that span the LA River. I thought that you could take that initial image of the bridge, those, that, those singular pair of arches, and in a sense, multiply them, create a, a, a necklace of, of arches uh, from one side to the other as not only the primary structural element, but in a way to say that line that used to exist dividing one side of the city from the other at the river doesn't hold anymore. And what's more important is trying to braid the city back together and that the continuity of the arches could uh, maybe suggest almost an occupiable space, a greater level of complexity of use and engagement. Are there opportunities to 
pluralize or hybridize the program of a project like this uh, beyond simple, simply getting from here? There is, and there's a lot of space under the bridge. And in many of these types of structures, that space turns into forgotten, leftover, chained off, uh, fenced off spaces. Maybe they get used for maintenance yards or something. Here, there's a whole new, uh, quite large 11-acre park on the east side, and then a, a quite large public plaza that is being called the Arts Plaza on the west side, so that at the ground level, the bridge becomes the canopy or a roof for a number of of really open public and social spaces uh, on the on the ground itself. There's access to the river, which as the river continues to evolve, and it is certainly becoming much more present in people's minds, but physically becoming more of an amenity and more accessible. The Arts Plaza has a tunnel connection under the railroads uh, that's being expanded to provide real gateways to, to the river. And then the bridge has a number of moments where other ways of connecting or experiencing the bridge take place. There are uh, stairs that lead up over the arches. Uh, there are new uh, bicycle ramps that spiral around and connect the upper deck. Much of that was to try to move beyond thinking of the bridge simply as a place that got you from one side to the other horizontally, but started to connect not just side to side, but top to bottom to create a much stronger vertical weaving together of of the bridge deck with the city that exists um, down below it. That is that, even though in some ways it's very simple to have an idea of stairs up over the arches, is actually quite radically different because generally you're not allowed to climb on, on infrastructure. So trying to infuse the bridge with other modes of connection, other modes of of movement, other experiences is, um, I think, what's actually the most exciting part of the potential for the bridge. This sounds uh, timely given, uh, what's it been, a half a century of protecting us from the L.A. River, right. seeing it only yeah, on exactly. the long view exactly. down the, you know, down the filmic imaginary. Are there contradictions or challenges with respect to thinking about something like a bridge as an icon, which by definition needs to be continuous and mm-hmm. presumably have something of a, a coherent, if not singular, at least a legible identity, and the kinds of cultural differences, kinds of societal differences, the kinds of neighborhood differences that you're connecting to? Is there is there a tension there? Well, uh, there's a tension throughout the city, uh, certainly now in Los Angeles, and much of that is coming from the realities of, of uh, a greater density in the city. It's putting pressure or pressurizing parts of the city across the entire metropolitan area. And one of the most visible certainly has been in this area around the river in Boyle Heights, Lincoln Heights, and the Arts District, because there's been very vocal debates in the public around the the neighborhoods and the pressure on them and the concerns around gentrification. Los Angeles, over its history, has sometimes been thought of as a multicultural city because um, of the different cultures that exist here. But in the same way as we were talking about the bridge, uh, in a way, I, I would argue that the city 
has never really been a multicultural city. It's been a city of many cultures, largely apart, uh, generally siloized, quite internal. And the seams between those different neighborhoods and cultures, while not always visible, have been uh, extremely pervasive and prevalent. I think it's one of the responsibilities of anybody working in a city like this to find ways to to attack that problem, to challenge that siloization, and to find other means of at least demonstrating how you might begin to put the city uh, more in contact with each other, even if it's uncomfortable. And I think the bridge, to some extent, will have the possibility of doing that. Given uh, what you've said, and I think what's apparent to any observer in Los Angeles today about the increasing economic inequality, the real challenges around questions of access to uh, housing, affordable and otherwise, how is it that an architecture uh, practice uh, can intervene? I mean, setting aside public works and, and bridges, you found through your practice a variety of mechanisms to try to engage with these questions of identity, whether they be about economic inequality, access to housing, race, ethnicity. How, how does an architectural practice uh, connect to those societal uh, pressure points? Well, increasingly I've come to think that there is two connected but almost parallel parts of the way the practice works. And one of them is that there's a real role for the architecture. I also believe that there's a real role for the architect. And sometimes that work is happening completely in lockstep and sometimes they're happening again almost in two separate ways but in hopefully a parallel and forward moving direction and and what i mean by that is that los angeles is a city that has over its history had planning proposals larger visions that have been made for it but almost in every case those plans have largely disappeared and to in many ways been forgotten. It's not a city that easily gives over to a, a more totalizing vision. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. But what architecture can do as a singular thing, as a form, is I think still say something very pointed about a vision for the future city within the building itself. And that in that way I think that architecture in the city has the potential to to represent the future in a in a highly um, crystallized and um, singular way. And that's one of the reasons why I think there have been so many extremely influential buildings that have come out of the history of architecture in Los Angeles because they don't just talk about that architect and that particular project, but they seem to uh, refer or su- or suggest a kind of larger idea about about the way we live, about the way space works, the way form can be made in in LA. I mean, you're, you're mentioning on the one hand the role of the architect. Uh, not just in practice, but the role of the architect as a public figure in a way. And in my perception, I wonder if you'd agree with this. I'm less aware of other cities where something like the 51 miles of the L.A. River would be given to Frank Gehry. Right, 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 right. So the idea that the architect is a public figure in Los right. Angeles, um, of course, you know, Bannum was writing earlier on about 
many people arriving in Los Angeles to escape planning in a right. way, right, in the idea of the non-plan. You've also mentioned the, the kind of instrumental role that a piece of architecture or work of architecture can, can play to immediately address, whether it's bridging communities or whether it's providing affordable accommodation for housing. But you're also referring to the, uh, if I take it correctly, the legibility of architectural form. The work of architecture can stand in a way as a, as a public symbol mm -hmm. to be legible as such, to stand for incremental or otherwise kinds of societal problems. If you look at the history of architecture in this city, interestingly, a large part of it was certainly in the early history of, of architecture in Los Angeles. The form was the house. That's where architects primarily worked, generally work, the most inventive architects work. And that's where they, they invented things. And that has continued. It's, it's evolving some, it's not quite as prevalent as it once was, but certainly up until the eighties or the 1990s, that I would say was the, almost the most important architectural type for looking at how architects thought about the way we live and what the city might be like. And, and that might seem like a reach to connect the house to the city, but I was always struck by um, Yona Friedman. He talks about in one of his books, he started to imagine the house and that the house had a social life inside, but then uh, that house extended through the entry and out across the, the, uh, the walkway to the front yard and connected to the street. And he makes this very beautiful description of the way that the house is not disconnected from a larger conception, a larger universal conception of, of our lives. And if you look at a lot of that work here, I think the architects were asking the same questions. Not only how do we organize the life in the house, but how does this stand for a larger conception of, of the new world, of the future. And that's where this almost tradition of the singular form, the architectural form, being able to carry more, carry more weight in terms of its intentions, its meanings. I, I think it's a part of that long history here. The other part of that I mentioned is the work of the architect. This is a, a space that I've become increasingly interested in mostly by out of necessity with because of some of the projects that we're trying to do here. Some of it around the housing, some of it around infrastructure. And that is the place where the architect might not be necessarily working in traditional forms, but is working with the political mechanisms, the social mechanisms in the city. And it goes back to one of the, the great capacities that architecture brings of being maybe one of the last great generalists' disciplines. So you reference the, um, the history in the city of architects using the house, the single-family house, as a space of experimentation. To what extent do you associate yourself with the so-called Santa Monica School, that, that generation that came out here and, and, and in a way, uh, you know, kind of made their way initially in practice through these individual housing projects? Well, Robert Mangurian, who was one of... That group of architects at the time, partner with Craig Hodgetts, uh, came to teach a studio at uh, the GSD, which I took. We were designing the Getty Museum because that was a, that was just starting to happen. Sure, a little, a little project, a completely preposterous studio project. But Robert never shies away from that kind of large undertaking, that kind of grand plan. 
but it gave me the chance to come to LA and I was completely transfixed by the city. And I was, I was really transfixed by not only the, the physical qualities of the city, but by this idea that, that a group of younger architects at the time, uh, could, had the space to make things that, uh, were really unprecedented, uh, were incredibly radical in architecture at the time. And, um, I was looking for a place, I think in the back of my mind where you had that kind of openness that there wasn't a strict hierarchy to the way that you entered practice. And that group of architects, I think, really demonstrated or maybe reinvigorated the practice of architecture by saying that they would find their own way of practice. It related to the way that everybody thought about architectural practice, but the inspirations, the influences, their ambitions were uh, coming from someplace else. And it was it demonstrated a lot of possibility. So in that sense, I think they are still one of the most important and influential groups, not only in this city, but I think um, if you look at the history of 20th century architecture, certainly in that history. To what extent do you see that kind of innovation happening in more collective uh, housing projects? I mean, of course, the courtyard garden apartments and courtyard apartments are central to L.A.'s history. The, the, I'm learning about the five over ones and the kind of mid-rise density and this kind of thing. Is there something beyond the individual single family home as a site of experimentation for the architect at, at larger scales in housing? Well, I think there has to be. And I think you're hitting on something which is in many ways the, uh, the real question for not only the city, around housing and how we live and density, affordability, but for architecture in this city as well. That that openness that I talked about of is not an inevitability. And it has been a, a significant part of the culture of architecture and design and development here. But we shouldn't believe that it has uh, just a, a natural ongoing uh, life to it. It's something that you have to continue, I think, to work at to find new uh, problems to try to address as an architect so that there's the potential to invent new forms as opposed to replicating the forms of the past, which you, you could see even post that generation, uh, there started to be work that looked the same stylistically, but were not necessarily taking on the same issues that that uh, generation of work mm. took on with the intense pressure on the city, the densification of the city, the challenges around things like resources and land, uh, literally just the ability to acquire land, the single family house is to a large extent, a form of the past. The city is going to need to find ways to, live in a different way. It's well put. I mean, and beyond just, you know, your public profile in the city as an architect or a, a pronouncement of your value system, you've committed to this in your practice from my experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if your practice has in, in part, among other things, begun with houses, some yeah. quite extraordinary houses, thank you very much. And at the mm -hmm. same moment in the past decade or two, I think of your work on the Star Apartments or Rainbow Apartments, or other projects of delivering affordable housing mm -hmm. in the city at, at scale. As you made that set of choices, were you thinking about the necessity to 
build those projects in terms of the constituency and the political work beforehand? Or did, or did the desire to work in affordable housing precede that sense that you then have to climb behind the curtain? You know, I th when I started working on the housing projects with the Skid Row Housing Trust, in the beginning, it was just about the possibility of doing a housing project. But very quickly, I was confronted with, number one, what does it mean to do uh, multifamily housing in a city that is largely characterized, its identity is the single family house. How do you start to make that transition and not merely look at models and precedents from other cultures that aren't necessarily appropriate to the way that uh, Los Angeles has made its life? And then secondly, uh, because there wasn't that much housing done, very quickly, you, uh, we ran up against a lot of the roadblocks, a lot of the jurisdictional and bureaucratic roadblocks that had uh, largely held multifamily housing at bay. Certainly there were cultural biases because in most uh, parts of the city, multifamily housing was thought of as lower social status and nobody wanted it anywhere near the residential districts, which is to some extent why you started to see so much of the housing happening downtown first, because there wasn't as much of a pushback from neighborhoods uh, there as there has been and still is in other parts of, of the city. Second thing was that the building codes at the time made it very difficult to start to push that density up uh, because most of those codes were written for a lower density uh, city, you could build office towers, but housing couldn't be built using those kinds of construction techniques because you couldn't afford to build housing. So you were building housing and we're still building housing, largely using the techniques that were developed in the single family house, a concrete slab and wood stick built construction above that. On the other hand, were there certain uh, liberties, were, were there uh, aspects of those projects with the Skid Row Housing Trust that uh, enabled you to innovate in a way that you might not have otherwise been able to with uh, more traditional or more, um, you know, kind of normative housing projects? You know, ironically, to some extent, housing is housing, whether it's happening for somebody who is uh, recently coming off the street or whether it's somebody who's looking to live in a, in a more luxury apartment building, the fundamentals are actually not all that different. The choreography of the way you uh, move from the street into your, your apartment, the kind of social interactions that happen in those buildings, the types of social and pri public and private amenities, uh, the navigation between public and private, Obviously, there are differences in finishes and the cost and the scale and the size of them, but it still comes down to how does somebody live in the city? And I believe there are some foundational questions that uh, cut across almost all types of housing. Any visitor to Los Angeles, of course, sees both the pressures in terms of densification and, and access to affordable housing, but also the pressing, urgent kind of homeless situation here. Mm -hmm. 
why is there such a gap between the built examples that we have that you've demonstrated mm -hmm. through your work and the work of other architects working in the city and other institutions and NGOs and trusts and community development organizations? Why is there such a gap between that and the obvious need for this work? Homelessness has been a, a problem in Los Angeles for a long time. Skid Row Housing Trust was founded, as were other organizations, to try to address that challenge. But up until the recession, the numbers were numbers that you could uh, you could wrap your head around. You could imagine potentially addressing the that challenge in a way that eventually you could uh, you could potentially conquer at least. The majority of homelessness. But during the recession, it took a lot of people by surprise. It, it just exploded at such a level that it became daunting in the city. This is the housing mortgage crisis of 08, 09 you're referring to exactly. and, the, and the ripple through the economy. And it had huge effects on, uh, on health care that uh, many of those individuals were depending on. People lost their access to uh, supportive services and were turned back out onto the street. So it was happening at, at many, many different levels. People were, were being, in a sense, dropped out of, some people would describe it as a safety net, but really being dropped onto the street for many, many different reasons. And that's only, that's only continued to grow. Are you optimistic looking forward? Well, the conversation has to, um, and the approach has to change. In the city, I'm optimistic, and this is a, a cruel irony of the problem. But I'm optimistic because the problem has gotten so unwieldy, and also that homelessness now exists everywhere in the city, where it was tended to be more, as we said before, siloized in Skid Row, maybe Venice Beach, in a few locations. For most of the city, it was a kind of anonymous problem. They didn't have to deal with it. But you can't move around Los Angeles without coming in contact with homelessness. And because of that, it's on everybody's minds. You, Every dinner conversation, every time you talk to somebody and the topic of the city comes up, the first conversation point is around homelessness. And I think that's positive, just that there's an awareness now where there's a greater ability to have a genuine conversation, whether leadership in the city is willing to take that on. So that's another question. The second thing is that, and it's not whether I'm optimistic or not, but there's a growing realization, I believe, that the nonprofit sector is not going to be able to solve the problem on its own. We've, I think, done very strong work for the Skid Row Housing Trust. We've completed four buildings. If you take all of those buildings, we've built 400 units of housing. The current number is that um, underhoused population in Los Angeles is about a half a million uh, individuals. The homeless count is way up over 50,000 uh, at this point. It depends on whose numbers you believe. It's going to have to take a different, a different approach to how you build enough housing uh, rapidly. And I, one of the things I do believe is that it's, it's putting a lot of pressure to bring the private sector into this conversation to build more housing. They've been very tentative about it for understandable reasons. It's difficult to build uh, under a lot of the regulatory 
structures that exist in the city, that development community has to be incentivized in some way to allow the city to access that capacity that exists in the private sector just is never really going to exist in the nonprofit sector and um, at scale. So from your perspective, having worked in this space for a couple of decades and having realized some of the most, I think, uh, well-considered and well-received examples of publicly subsidized and affordable housing in U.S. in recent memory, the model of simply devolving to community development and not-for-profits to simply solve the problem has been exhausted. I think you've been very clear about that here. I mean, another topic that I want to touch on, I know certainly at the Graduate School of Design and other uh, schools, certainly on the East Coast, our students are coming in now expecting to address societal issues through design. Mm. They expect, they demand a Green New Deal. They expect, and, and I'm beginning to sense increasingly in my conversations that we might be on the, the cusp of something that could be like a, a return to a progressive moment mm. in American you know, political economy. When I'm at the schools, it feels like that. And a shift in generational awareness seems absolutely to be um, taking place come to the office, come to the studio, out of school, uh, are interested in architecture as a whole, but certainly very interested in the way that architecture can have some more significant position in the conversation in, in, in the world, in cities especially. And I, I think that's something that's very positive, that there is that kind of interest. A question for that generation is how they continue to grow their thinking about what architecture and architects can do. It's important to know how to design housing. It's important to know how to put a building to, uh, together. It's important to know, or at least to have ideas about how you choreograph that experience for an individual. But uh, it's still going to be challenging to do these projects. So how can you, as an architect, as a young architect, also start to put yourself in positions uh, where you can have a real seat at the table around that that conversation. And that's one of the places where I, I do believe that architecture should continue to challenge itself to expand its thinking, its conception of what its role is in, in culture. The building part is absolutely uh, essential. And it has huge effects on demonstrating what can be done. But uh, we're throwing away too much of our capacity to concentrate solely on that part of what architecture's role is in culture. Is there a role for the architect to play in shifting the framework away from technical and policy and financialization questions, however pertinent they might be, toward a simple moral authority? We're, we're living in a period of time which I think is regarded in many measures as among the most prosperous countries in the history of the world. I mean, we have incredible wealth in this, and we've decided collectively, for reasons I still don't fully understand, to not uh, provide health care or education or housing for our populations. I mean, we, we live in a culture, I think it's fair to describe, in which those things have become uh, luxury goods as the effective capital. Mm -hmm. Having said that, is there a role for the architect as a public figure to advocate for that housing as a right? I, there's certainly a role, but I don't think it can come solely from a moral argument, at least in my experience. Coming at it from a strong ethical standpoint, underpinned by genuine metrics and um, an understanding of the economics and the benefits and the ramifications of not confronting these problems are essential to change the conversation, to redirect the conversation. That 
the function of of protest is extremely important to uh, create awareness, but I think very quickly it has to be uh, filled in, backfilled by, supported by genuine thinking about about how you would navigate through these different uh, challenges, uh, how you would connect the different groups and bureaucracies and and leaders to drive this that drive this forward. There's greater complexity uh, in that, but that's generally, if you can start to solve or address that, that's where there's real traction to be had. I mean, I'm thinking a little bit also about other periods, other progressive moments in American history, which have not always led young people to architecture. Hmm. I, for example, my, you know, my reading in the 1960s in schools of design broadly is that many people were radicalized and came to say, see design as a, an elitist activity. Hmm. Many came to see design as really a part of the problem in terms of its relationship to the power structures that existed. And that's in part why planning schools, many of them left uh, schools of architecture. Mm -hmm. And that schism between affecting political change through policy and political economy on, on the one hand, as opposed to cultural change through architectural intervention, I think in some ways we're still dealing with this. Right. I, I would argue that you, in architecture, you can have both and that... There's often what seems to me an artificial argument, uh, a highly polarized argument that it has to be one or the other. Architecture has the capacity to cover broader territory than that. And, and I think we're foolish to think that uh, culture becomes one thing. A part of what, at least I, I hope we're demonstrating in our practice, uh, by the breadth of the types of, of projects that we're working on or we've been fortunate to work with, is that architecture is very elastic. It has the ability as a practice to cover uh, wide territory and that that's hugely beneficial to making an argument about architecture's role, its potency, and what it can contribute when you have other examples from other project types and other situations and other cities to, to be examples, to be illustrations of what might be able to be accomplished on the problem that you're working on. Michael, you referenced uh, your uh, interest in and reading of the history of modern architecture as a part of your appetite for taking on housing and the idea of housing as kind of a central preoccupation for so much of the history of architecture and, and thinking about the city. But I, I think that you know many authors have reached the conclusion that for a whole number of reasons in this in this country, as we've decided over the course of the last half century or more to get out of the business of public subsidized housing, somehow architects have disproportionately taken responsibility for that failure. I, right. mean, I think if you if you look at the demolition of Pruitt Igo that Charles Jenks gave us all, and somehow that the, the failure of that project has been received to be historically as an architectural failure right. as opposed to a failure of political will or public policy. Well, I think that's a it's it's enormously important important question, especially as we're confronting some of these issues now, because it, it certainly points to the reality that our approach to housing is successful when culture takes on the full scope of uh, the complex issues that come along with housing. The idea that you can boil it down to, to one thing was, I think, a large part of the, 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 the fiction that sunk Many of those projects coming out of out of the post-war, they, they, they weren't inherently doomed to failure. 
many of the uh, support mechanisms, the conditions changed. They started to become more singular uh, in their demographics. And they started to fall apart as more dynamic social organisms. Architecture has the benefit, but in that kind of a case, the burden of representing. And it it's something that you can point to and say that is sometimes a success. And just as often, that's an indication of the failure. That's something as architects we do have to fight against. But it's also something it's important to remember that's one of the strengths that if somebody can point to something and say that's the problem, it can also be used to say this is one of the solutions. This is one of the ways forward. So it's the other side of the coin you were referring to earlier about the legibility of architecture as a, as a public good. That's an incredibly important. We shouldn't forget that as we focus on social issues, on political issues, financial issues, that one of our greatest tools is still architecture, making something that says something to other people. That capacity of making a form that represents something that's an extremely powerful tool. I'm interested in the status of housing in terms of the education of the architect. You've obviously been an educator as well. You've been engaged in schools and, and as a public figure in our field, have had quite a, an important influence in the shape of our field. I see increasingly schools returning to housing and the kind of pedagogy around housing. Um, in that regard, what, what would you say about the role of housing and the history of housing in the education of the architect? Well, you can track the history of uh, modernism, certainly, if you were to only study housing, because uh, many of the ideas and the developments, literally the, the individual characters who were part of that story, are all connected to housing. It's a, uh, it's a remarkable through line. It also allows you to look at the history of culture, of economies, of politics, of collective social ideas, and understanding that history, understanding the uh, nuances of it, understanding uh, what role housing had in those particular moments in culture um, and what the debates were, what the conversations were, uh, I think are hugely important and useful going forward because many of those conversations are, are conversations we're still having, maybe in slightly different forms. They might have a different code on, but they're, they're, they're really getting at very similar things, uh, very similar ambitions and apprehensions. The other thing is that there's something so fundamental about housing. No matter how complex it eventually becomes in a designer's form, there's something very, very basic. Not simple. Reduced. Not simple, but there's something very fundamental about housing. When we got the first project, Rainbow Apartments, for Skid Row Housing Trust, the thing that happened out of that, the thing I learned was that the building got built, people moved in, and it was incredibly successful. And the reason it was successful was because the circulation was right. And people could have a, a private, a semi-public, and a public part of their day. There were uh, ways that community could be built because of the type of spaces that we still had in those those buildings. Uh, there was a generosity in terms of the units and the way that the units were developed, where you had light on both sides, really fundamental things. And I think the idea of housing studio coming back into 
into pedagogy is important not only because it helps you to understand how to, how to do housing in the future, but it can tell you something so fundamentally about architecture as a whole. So in fundamental, I hear you almost saying uh, perennial, not easy, not sorted out, but rather the idea that one wouldn't immediately leave one's private realm immediately into full public That's space. Right. The, you know, I think of Rainbow and these other projects as having a kind of a spectrum of publicness, very various forms of sociability. Right. And of course, this maps onto human experience. I mean, and I think among the among the reception of these projects has been the sense that I don't know precisely where on the value engineering chart that landed or where on your budget that landed. But the idea that, you know, one has light from different points of view and that one can have a breath of fresh air, one can engage in various forms of sociability, let's say, if not community. Those are things that are fundamental, but so easily absent in so much architecture. Well, a little bit more uh, to give you a little bit more story about that project. I think that the, the biggest invention in Rainbow was not the private space or the public space. It was the in-between, the kind of semi-public uh, world. And the reason why that was so important was many of those individuals who were uh, coming to Rainbow to live had been chronically homeless. And chronically homeless in many cases means you've been on the street for 10 years. You would expect chronically homeless to be like four or five months, but these people have been there out on the street for a long time. And because of that, out of necessity, they had developed these incredibly thick shells around themselves, psychological shells. They didn't know how to react to anybody. They knew how to be on the street and they knew how to be by themselves. But the ability to have any kind of um, social interaction was had been cut out of, it, for many of those individuals, their capacity. We took the building. Most housing tends to get built as a a double loaded corridor. There's a corridor in the middle. It's like in a hotel, apartments on both sides. The problem with that is those individuals would come in the building, get in an elevator, walk down that anonymous corridor and go in their room. We fought to crack the building open to make them single loaded corridors so that you were on a balcony in a sense around an open courtyard. And it meant that you didn't have to actually physically interact with someone but visually, at least, you were in this somewhat safe, internal, but still very visible world of your community. And that move, which is really baseline of how you decide to lay out housing, where do you, how do, where do you put the corridor and how do you access the apartments, ends up having the biggest effect on uh, the ongoing lives of those residents. I recall the uh, the reception of this work. I mean, the the work you're doing with the Skidbrough Housing Trust and its reception in the national and international press. So, uh, well well described in the popular literature, uh, but also in the professional press. I mean, I, I wonder if you have thoughts about the the way in which those projects have impacted the conversation. I'm I recall seeing them in print and the kind of reverberation in the conversations I was having with my colleagues about right. how, oh, it's actually possible to do right. something like this. Right. It definitely felt that at the time in the beginning that we were doing something, we were involved in something that was new or outside of what a lot of architects were doing. I felt people were interested. They were, I think there was some real confusion or people were a little perplexed by how the practice was evolving because they knew us more from probably a lot of the, the, the cultural work. I think I remember wondering 
was this a one-off or was this going to start to open up in a way that other people could begin to do that work? You should. And hopefully it did. It, it would start to open up. And I think it has opened up more for people to be able to do it. The place where that question about the kind of architecture we do or the kind of architect I am, supposedly, and what the buildings were and who they were intended for, where that was more, for me, an issue was really more in the public. Uh, we would, after we built the first and then uh, certainly the second project, Carver uh, Apartments, I w- would get a lot of comments. You would see it in the letters to the editor. You would uh, see it at public meetings. I would hear it um, at dinners. Why are you making things that are that nice for that community? And I was, it, that was the thing. I was incensed because all I could think of was ha- how... This is your city too. We, how can you decide that a part of your city should be made in a less uh, conscious, uh, a less positive, uh, less contributing way? It that that was a th- it wasn't even that they were saying something about the uh, people who are going to be living in these buildings. That was outrageous enough, but that somehow we would be willing to toss away a part of our physical world, our our physical scene, our community, because something wasn't as as good as the other. I found that preposterous. But actually, the the real question as an architect you need to approach the project with is that it is actually for our collective organization. It It is for us that we then make something for those individuals the individual is just one part of this larger uh, this larger organization, which is is the city itself. So speaking of collectivity, you've already acknowledged and you're well, well aware you're not the only architect working in this space. Mm-hmm. Of course, Southern California has been a place of experimentation in various uh, moments. I think of other practices in California more broadly that have been engaged in these questions. Do you have a sense now that there are more architects working with respect to housing delivery, affordability and otherwise? I think there are. And it's become, housing has become, in some way, uh, at least in California, I think housing has become a little bit of an equivalent to what the house was pre and post-war, that it's a place where a wider range of architects who are interested in taking on challenging problems, and maybe with fewer resources than you would have in bigger uh, corporate projects, it's a space that you can you can make a practice out of, and um, I think that role is only going to. I think that that space is only going to continue to grow. I think it's inevitable. You see, you know, Los Angeles and the architectural culture here playing a role in providing models for other American cities. I think we have to be careful here to be not too presumptuous to say that what we make is instantly important in other places, but. There is a history of the work happening here having a um, truly inventive underpinning and challenging a lot of the preconceptions around different types and forms in spaces in architecture. And because of that, it, it's important to recognize that that's been a part of the role of architecture in L.A. It's part of the responsibility to continue to drive that uh, level of invention 
forward, or at least the willingness to take on unconventional challenges and to try to make something out of it. It's also important for us to replay that to ourselves as architects here. A um, client and friend of mine, Larry Pittman, the painter, once said that one of his greatest fears for Los Angeles is that it stops being a fixer-upper. I think that, to me, hit the challenge for Los Angeles as squarely on the head as anything I've ever heard, that this is a city that has benefited from its lack of hierarchy. It's benefited from its openness. It's benefited from uh, the freedom to make anything, even ugly things, as a part of the overall scene. And as the city gets denser and denser, and as there's more pressure on it, it wouldn't be unusual for people to start uh, pulling models from other places or to fall victim to the pressures around schedule and budget and and um, uh, just repeat themselves. We have to make sure that as a design culture, we continue to challenge ourselves and each other to to keep that territory open, to continue to make the city, to allow the city to be a fixer-upper. One of the reasons I ask is it's uh, it's my perception, I wonder if you'd agree with this, that in spite of a general sense of, you know, us being maybe maybe on the cusp of a progressive moment again in American political life, the conversation about housing delivery and the role of the architect seems to be very local. I mean, I know that there are many things being done in the Bay Area, many things happening in Southern California. I know of many experiments in Chicago, many experiments in Texas, a lot of things happening in other parts of the world, South Florida. Mm. But it's not yet clear to me, with one or two exceptions, that I could understand what's happening nationally. Right, right. Uh, it, I, I don't know to what extent there is a kind of communication between those experiments or or are they necessarily so local and contingent that they have to be thought about at the scale of the city? I think it's a very good question and one that's certainly been on my mind. And I, I'm, I don't think there is yet that uh, more cohesive national conversation. I think there's a growing awareness across the discipline of what people are doing in different places. Some of that has to do with the specifics of trying to build this kind of work in any any local jurisdiction. We talked about codes before. We talked about the um, the political ramifications, even the construction techniques and the way contractors uh, work. Not to mention being around and being available. Exactly. Those those all play a, a heavy role. And many of these projects, I think, are being responsive to those uh, more local set of, of challenges. And um, on the one hand, you you could say, well, we're missing a larger national dialogue about these things. But for the time being, I, I don't think it's a bad thing because, again, we should be mindful of that longer history and that a national dialogue and a, and a kind of national approach to housing at one point tended to homogenize that approach in ways that not just from the architecture, but uh, again, from the economics and, and the uh, social constructs had a detrimental effect to their long-term viability. So I, I think this, a general growth seems to be underway. That's positive. What happens from there? I, I think it's unclear. Certainly a wide horizon. Michael Maltzen, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.